0: Welcome to the Microbials Matter Podcast, where microbials matter. We welcome our host, Dr. William Zimmer, veterinarian and founder of BioVet. Dr. Zimmer has dedicated over 30 years to researching and developing products that support digestion and overall health in livestock. In studio today we have Dr. Zimmer and Dr. Haas again joining us. So, you know, last time we learned a lot about chemistry, we learned that ketosis is one of those things that on the surface looks like a, a pretty easy problem to solve and really is ballooning underneath into into a whole myriad of problems and and not saying that ketosis causes our next uh, metabolic issue obviously but sometimes you you have them together and that is the age old milk fever what milk fever really is right because mm-hmm. i think you know we used to say when i was a kid she she just didn't have enough calcium but i yep. think there's there's a little more to that that messaging than than just yeah. just the calcium part
1: but why is calcium so important that's the question That comes to mind. And so if you really want to think of it at its its basis is calcium's role in muscular contractions. So calcium is required for muscles to contract. It doesn't matter if it's a uterus or if it's a rumen or if it's your iris or if it's your big muscles that allow you to stand. At its basis, it's it's a decrease. It's hypocalcemia. It's a decrease in the available blood calcium to do all of these processes within the body that are extremely important and required. You couple on the fact that that cow just put an awful lot of calcium into the bones of that calf that it's producing, especially those last couple of weeks of gestation when, when the calcium or the cartilage starts to ossify, starts to turn into bone. And then you, on top of that, go from making no milk whatsoever to making huge slugs of milk, especially in the dairy world. And it's one of the reasons why we see it so commonly in dairy cattle. It's really not a concern um, and some people will argue with me, I'm sure in the beef world, and I have lots of friends that are beef (laughs) veterinarians. We just don't see it in the beef world all that much. Um, that doesn't mean that can't happen, but it's really because of the, the huge calcium outflux, uh, that's occurring outflow that's occurring when that animal starts to calve or after it calves, um, it starts to produce milk. And so, um, it's, it's really, it's, it's not just what's available to that cow either. Um, that cow really can't, eat enough in this natural forages, enough calcium to support itself. So it has to liberate this calcium from its bones. So it's a hormonal disease as well. So if we can, a a young heifer, maybe a second calf animal that's had her, so she's had her second calf. She's young. She's in the prime of her life. We rarely see milk fever issues. That doesn't mean we don't, but we rarely see milk fever issues there. It's the typical Wisconsin milk fever cow is that cow that's maybe fifth lactation, fourth, fifth, sixth lactation. She's gone through liberating a lot of this calcium from her bones, and it just doesn't have necessarily the the receptors for this hormonal regulation or also the bone mass that's there. Um, so that's at its basis. Now, we know a lot more, and Dr. Zimmer's going to be able to talk a lot more about how pH plays a role here and acid-base balance and and anions and cations and all these different more complex—I I think that's one thing that we've learned in the last— Again, decade, maybe two decades, mm-hmm. is that we have a, a couple different avenues to address it now, where it used to be just let's IV her with some calcium, get her over that, get her standing, and by then she's going to be good. Um, right. Now we have a little bit yeah. other ways to address this without the without the needle necessarily.
0: Definitely, and I mean it makes sense when you say you know when you think about those older cows, yeah, they're they're using more reserves, they're they're generally producing more milk out of the gate. Sometimes they have bigger calves. Uh, so, I mean, it's not a surprise, right, that no, the demands not, not continue to increase as age and lactation continue to increase. We see
1: it in other animals, too. All mammals, mm-hmm. right? Mammals make milk. And we see these type of issues in humans with osteoporosis, for instance, and, and things like that. But we see it in all mammals that produce milk is as they have uh, subsequent babies, parturitions, and they're putting these uh, calcium stores into their babies. And then they're producing milk again to feed those babies that oftentimes we see very similar situations
0: but like you said Dr. Zimmer there's there's more to this story than just there's a lot more to it now
2: we understand a lot more about it now i would say we've made a lot of advances actually in the overall management of milk fever to
0: mm-hmm. the point
2: where we have rations now that have dietary cation anion difference uh, evaluations we can do with anionic salts things like that where we've dramatically reduced down the level of these Arturian paresis cows, these down cows. We don't see this clinical milk fever nearly as often as we used to. But what we do see is a lot of these cows are still what we call subclinically hypocalcemic. Right. And this is related to the genes, the milk production capability of our cows, the fact that we're now giving, you know, a cow can be pumping out 150 cow pounds of milk 30 days in lactation instead of 40 pounds like she was Mm -hmm. in the 1940s. (laughs) So the demand has grown so much. Right. And so what we find with these cows is even though we can manage the clinical side of it, we're really still waiting for the hormones in her body to kick in. And so typically what happens with a cow is they, they suddenly get this demand for milk and they have a calcium requirement to make that milk. And they know that their blood calcium levels start to drop. They will actually release a hormone called parathyroid hormone, which allows Ah, her to pull that calcium out of her bones and put it in the bloodstream to do what it needs to do. That system (coughs) takes a couple of days to kick in. Hmm. And so when we've done some of these things from a ration standpoint, we've kept that system propped up enough by keeping her blood pH at a low level where the receptors for every parathyroid hormone that's out there, the receptors are able to to absorb that and and react to it. But we still have this lag time. And it can last 24 hours. It can last 36 hours. It can go out to 72 hours. The longer it is, the worse it is for these cows. So these ration strategies that we put together have helped shorten that and taken care of some of the really clinical down cows. But we still have now created, because of our genetics, this huge subclinical group that costs us money if we can't get them through that short little window.
0: So you know, backing this conversation up just a little bit before we go into kind of that subclinical cow, um, the clinical cows. What when you talk about you know cation and anion, and maybe maybe this all goes together, but you know, walk me through what that that science looks like because I think you know we see. Um, the dietary cation, anion, and we know it's a thing, and we know it's it's involved in the in the dry period. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But and I don't think we fully understand, like, why it's important. And again, it has to do with kind of that that utilization of calcium out of the bones, right?
2: It does. And this is one of the reasons why we still have so much hypocalcemia going around is you can take this all the way back to your agronomy program, what you're doing on your soils. Mm. Um, one of the more popular fertilizer products that's out there is a potash, so which is potassium. Right. Potassium is a cation, and so as we elevate the so levels of positively cations, charged, positively charged, yes. correct. Yes. As we've elevated the levels of potassium in our feeds, we've seen more hypocalcemia, mm-hmm. and which makes it sense. has nothing to do with calcium. It has to do with the fact that we've created more potassium and more cations. So we've kind of disrupted this cation-anion balance by putting too many cations into these rations. And potassium is really the biggest culprit. And so now the way we've come to combat that is to come in with anions that will help balance out those extra cations. So So if you want the freebie, it's reduced down the level of potassium that you have in the feed that you're feeding to dry cows. Right. Which is easier said than done.
0: Of course it is. (laughs) Of course it
2: is. It's just easier said than done.
0: So, I mean, again, you have to forgive me my science. Here's a little rusty. Calcium's a negative ion, right? Calcium is a positive yeah. ion. It's a positive ion. And it
1: actually has two charges to it. So right. it's a it's bivalent a, cation. A stronger ion. Stronger ion. So it's a stronger ion because there's a two
0: plus charge. So when we have the potash or when we have the potassium, how is that how is two positives kind of leading to this? Because we're war? again
2: we're we're getting such a high level of the positive charge cations that the receptors that are there for parathyroid hormone want to have a little bit more of a negative charge in the blood. Mm -hmm. They want to be slightly more acidic than normal, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking, uh, you know, an acidic pH because we're we're still talking around a pH of 7.4, which is slightly on the basic side. Right. And if we can get that and stay there, that's great. If we put too many cations like potassium there, the body has to balance out that. And so all of a sudden you'll start to get acid base shifts where her blood pH will go up a little bit. And now those parathyroid receptors aren't there. The hormone's not going to react to the
0: body. So what is a common anion that we might...
2: So typically, you'll be looking at some type of a chloride, which would be the Mm -hmm. anion portion. And it'll be linked to something like ammonium ions, um, a cation, but one that is easily metabolized by the body and and peed out, if you will, in the urine Mm -hmm. as ammonia or converted to urea. And then that chloride will be the residual that's there with a negative charge that will kind of help offset some of that potassium or that... Slight cases sodium, but usually it's potassium. Right, Um, and so you you get these molecules that are that are kind of that way. Magnesium chloride has been used in the past for this. Mm -hmm. Um, Even calcium chloride has been used. Calcium
0: chloride is one you hear about once in a while. mm -hmm. So, kind of recapping, I guess what we've talked about at this point because it's been it's been pretty science heavy. But milk fever, right? Cows are utilizing a lot of output of calcium at once, and when they go to utilize that, they just don't have enough in their bloodstream to keep those smooth muscle or their muscles working, so they can't stand up. So one of the things that we've seen in the nutrition world is to do these DCAD diets. By doing that, we're basically trying to level out um, the positive ions and the negative ions because the calcium affixes to or the par- parathyroid
2: hormone affixes to, to these receptors. Fixes to these receptors but
0: yes. other things can can interrupt that, especially when yep. we have these pH Changes, we have this this positive negative charge changes, right? Am I yeah
1: yep. catching yep. on the well okay, okay.
0: Yep. So really, which from what I'm hearing is that's still not a great solution to our milk fever.
2: It's part of the solution. problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's made some dramatic improvements in the way we manage things, as I mentioned earlier. We because we still have this short window that's there, some of the newer research that's out there is kind of wondering which direction this, win, you know, this window goes. We, we know that cows, at, when their calcium drops right after calving, if it drops and then recovers within 24 hours, those cows are actually more likely to give more milk. Sure. If it stays low, they're more likely to not give more milk. They're more likely to give mm-hmm. less milk and then have problems. And so we, we know that this is part of the natural system that's there. We just need to address that short window, and I like to call it 24 hours. You get me through mm-hmm. this 24 hours, and then her own metabolism, her own parathyroid can kick in. And really, we need to address that window. That's the part that we need to probably expand on a little bit more. I think the nutrition world has got a pretty good handle on these Mm -hmm. negative, you know, decad rations. But they can only go so far. And now we need to have this next phase of talking about this 24 hours of managing cows to get them Mm -hmm. through this window.
1: And and the tricky thing that we didn't really talk about, although I think you can allude to it, and I think it's, it's borne out more now than it ever was before, is... The question is, why don't we just feed them more calcium in that late transition period, right? I mean, it would
0: make seems sense. seems to make sense, right? And it's and yet, actually but it
1: counterintuitive <laughs> to yeah. occur. And the reason why is, kind of like we talked about with with glucose and ketosis, if you're not fulminantly you know, foaming at the mouth with the ketosis, <laughs> um, giving dextrose to those animals kind of tells the body, I don't need to necessarily liberate this sugar from the food sources in the rumen. Giving too much calcium shuts down parathyroid hormone. Uh, oh, if I have a lot of calcium yeah. in my bloodstream, there's no reason for that hormone to be around to start liberating it from the bones. And, and all these hormonal cascades take time. You mm-hmm. mentioned it. Um, so it's not like we can just all of a sudden turn that switch on. So we can't do that. And that's one thing that with some of these other metabolic-type diseases, we can address them a little bit earlier by supplementing into that transition cow diet uh, some of those missing components. Here we actually want to keep calcium at a relatively low level until she really needs it so that we can keep that parathyroid hormone up and going. We want it actually to actually be activated prior to her calving.
0: So when uh, you talk about when she really needs it and you talk about this first 24-hour window, I assume we're talking from, you know, birth of calf.
2: <laughs> or even slightly before. Mm-hmm.
0: Through maybe her second milking. Yeah, somewhere in that mm-hmm. window.
2: Again, usually it's 24 to 72 hours is a typical window. I would say with... The DCAD rations that are out there in anionic salts, that window's probably shrunk down to 12 to 36 hours. So that's a good thing. We've shrunk that window down pretty dramatically. But we still have that window that we're really trying to address. And now the question is, how are we going to do that and to what level? And I'm going to tell a war story here if that's okay.
0: These are my favorite type.
2: So I am guilty of when I was in practice, probably... One of the major disservices that i've seen veterinarians do over the last 20 years which was we implemented this program of teaching farmers how to treat their own milk fevers and then going yes. to well if you're doing that why don't we just give one bottle of calcium to every cow that calves okay and the latter part was kind of a disservice because the difficulty there is as dr Haas just said when we get too much calcium in place it shuts down parathyroid hormone and that's what was happening when we're giving a whole bottle of calcium that has 10 grams of calcium in it. The bloodstream of a cow normally only has three grams in it.
0: Oh, gosh. We're really... So we're
2: three times the level that her bloodstream wants to carry. the system there a little bit. Every time I do a presentation, I talk to people. When it's about calcium, I say, if you're still IVing every cow that calves, please stop. I apologize for you know that. It was the best knowledge we had at the time, mm-hmm. but we didn't right. understand everything that was going on. Yeah. You're better off on that short-term basis using an oral calcium because it becomes self-regulated. You can't overdose that bloodstream on calcium when you give it as an oral.
0: All right. So tell me, yeah, so, right, oral oral calcium, the gels, the... the
2: Gels, capsules, yeah, pastes.
0: That's science, and and those products have exploded over the last mm-hmm. 10, 15 it years. They've changed the industry. Yeah, they really have. Uh, when you think about that lineup, how, when you say it's self-regulating, Again, I know this is going to go back to my favorite subject ever, the microbiome and the (laughs) microbials.
2: Just to simplify it down, there's two major pathways that calcium gets absorbed by from the gut. One of them is with an active transport, so it has proteins that help this calcium molecule across the gut wall. It's kind of slow and steady. It's the way most of our calcium that's in our ration throughout the entire lactation of that cow is going to get absorbed into her bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Just slow and steady as it goes. The difficulty with that absorption pathway is when I put a huge draw by suddenly making a lot of milk right at calving time, it can't keep up. Right. So there's a second pathway that calcium can actually be absorbed across the gut wall and into the bloodstream, and it's actually what we call passive transport. So if I put enough calcium into the gut, make it soluble so it goes into solution in that fluid that raises the calcium ions that are there, it can passively cross that gut wall across what we call a concentration gradient and into the bloodstream. This is why it becomes self-limiting because I have to have this 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 high level in the gut and a low level in the blood. And as the level in the blood starts to go up, I really have to have a lot more in the gut in order to drive it across that concentration gradient. So it becomes self-limiting because as I start raising that calcium level in the blood, it slows down on how much can be absorbed by that passive transfer. uh, transfer. It works great just to kind of keep it more steady in that period of time. But when we're low, it can get to the bloodstream in a matter of minutes. Sure. versus the other pathway where it might take several hours to get the same amount of calcium from the gut into the blood.
0: Well, and, and really, from a management standpoint, it's a little easier to execute a bolus than it is maybe a full-on IV.
1: Absolutely. For certain individuals, yeah. I mean, I, I have uh, lots of clients I've worked with that just don't even want to attempt it. And, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of laugh at it when we chat about this, but it's a pretty uh, invasive procedure for individuals, right, uh, And and Tell you, the truth, there's a lot of situations where we would prefer they wouldn't. Well, I mean, you know, milk vein IVing is something that's very common to do because it's this huge vein and it's mm-hmm. right there, but you know, it's there for a reason and it's big for a reason. Um, but also in introducing pathogens and, and you know, manure well, I mean, into the
2: I, I think we all have our war stories when oh, yeah. in the practice of people that. Made a boo boo on this, exactly. if you will. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it's no different than humans. I mean, mm-hmm. why have an IV when you can take a pill? Kind of thing, exactly. right? It's it's just way less uh, cumbersome. It's way less invasive. I love that it's so connected, and that we know all this when you think about what we know. It's it's kind of amazing that we mm-hmm. know this much about cows and this much biology and this much biochemistry that we could have these conversations, and you know, and how it is all tied together. And it's still this is why we love cows because exactly. they're just. It's crazy amazing. Now,
2: that said, though, I don't want to dismiss that we do need to take care when we're using oral calcium supplements as well. And because this is anytime where the heat we put, comes in. Well, it's heat and even some of the, the better calcium sources that are out there that are going to go into solution very rapidly. Calcium chloride is the example. They are a little bit on the caustic side, so they irritate tissue. So you want to be careful that you're not creating wounds with whatever equipment you're using where you have an open cut or something like that because it, it's like... Pouring salt into a, mm-hmm. an open cut, it, it has some irritation that's there. Um, the liquid forms that are out there, you know, if that cow is breathing at that time and you overdose just a little bit, she can breathe some of that into her lungs and it creates that irritation. Mm-hmm. That's why I do like boluses and capsules versus liquids and paste because I think they're a little bit safer. But all of them require the proper equipment and just a little bit of training to make sure you're applying sure. them properly. And that that's really what I see is, is the
0: so going back a little bit to, you know, okay, so we've talked about why we can't feed calcium through the transition diet, why that's not a great idea. Um, and we've talked about why, you know, when she's she's now has a clinical case of milk fever, why, yes, there's times to use the IV, but, you know, now we're talking a little bit more subclinical or she's mm-hmm. – so we're into the pace and, and the bolus conversation – you Know both of you have mentioned this heat, ah, yes, heat in so the that, rumen, and I think we need to, I think we need to kind of uh extrapolate that out a little bit and kind of explain to everybody what we mean when we say right, heat, heat, heat in the rumen.
2: And so, this is what I spend a lot of my last probably five or ten years of my career in is, is studying these oral calcium supplements and how they're put together and, and what some of the the goods, the bads, and the uglies are of the ingredients that are there. Um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, probably the highest solubility. Calcium source we have is calcium chloride. Mm-hmm. It's right. extremely highly soluble. I mean, you can get—I think it's one hundred and twenty-five grams of calcium chloride or calcium from calcium chloride that you can get into hundred milliliters of water. So you can put more calcium chloride in than you actually have water. Which is it's crazy, I think. Yeah. The downside to calcium chloride is that when it goes into solution, it is an exothermic reaction and gives off heat. And so the easiest way to think of that is road crews in Wisconsin in the middle of the winter use calcium chloride to melt ice. That's the exact same chemical compound. As manufacturers of these types of products, we can sometimes deal with that in our manufacturing process through what we call hydration, where we put enough water in there to create that reaction so the heating goes on. And then when we give it to the cow, it won't heat again because it's already hydrated. Um, So we really have to be careful with that as to how products are manufactured. And I would like to say that they're all done that way, but Mm -hmm. I can't. Well, Um, I've tested enough of them to know that there are some goods and there are some bads and there are some really, really ugly ones that are out there when it comes to whether they've hydrated their calcium chloride Mm -hmm. or not. But that heat, if you put that bolus into the the gut and it's sitting right along the rumen wall and it's not hydrated calcium chloride, that heat is going to be generated right next to that tissue on that rumen wall and it's going to damage it.
0: I would be uh, amiss if I didn't ask how BioVet and what you've done and the work you've done, because obviously you've done your homework, you've done your research. How does, you know, what what does that calcium picture look like for BioVet? And, you know, are these products a blended scenario? Our products
2: are a blended scenario. We have looked at it and said we want to maintain. And there's a lot of data that's out there from other products that have been developed over the years Here's about the level of calcium chloride that we can put into a bolus that's easy to swallow. You don't want to get it too big where the cow can't swallow it. Oh,
0: no. So right. size,
2: size does matter in this situation a little bit. We want them a little bit smaller if we can keep them that way. And, and quite honestly, that's what limits some products on the market mm-hmm. is they want one bolus. Mm-hmm. Mm. You can only get so much calcium into one yeah. bolus.
0: And as we discussed, she better be able to swallow it.
2: Right. So actually, a lot of our formulations are multiple boluses so that they're a little bit smaller. We can get more calcium into them. Right. Um, We are using the calcium chloride as the base because it does have such good solubility. And we do want a little bit of chloride there because of that acidic effect.
0: Right.
2: Again, going back to those parathyroid hormone receptors. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we try to do then is we say, okay, once we hit that limit, we want to use things like calcium propionate calcium acetate, calcium lactate, some of these other sources that are highly soluble and can give us some other nutrients as well in the form of volatile fatty acids. And so we'll combine those together along with probably the the best insoluble form of calcium that's out there is going to be something like calcium sulfate. Calcium carbonate is commonly used in the market. The problem with calcium carbonate because of the carbonate portion that's there, it acts as a buffer and it raises I was the say pH.
0: That's a buffer. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and so all of a sudden this blood effect that I'm having there, I can kind of rather than keep it slightly acidic i can actually raise that up a little bit and then create a situation where those receptors are not going to be as as open and available as we want so or the opposite scenario you've got a smaller jersey
1: and you're trying to give them an oversized bolus and they just don't have the physical capacity to get it to fit in there so So the fact that biovet has different formulations different sizes um, so the minis and the regular size boluses as well and they're smaller um you, you give a few more, but they're smaller in size. And really, it's the same application through the, the balling gun that we use for it. I think just the ease of application is one. It's one of those things that oral administration, one thing we haven't talked about at all, is kind of a pain in the rear to have to deal with, right? I mean, it's pretty easy to give a shot
0: well, sure, to an animal. sure.
1: And so accessing the head and being able to, hmm? to give that, sometimes that's pro- the prohibitive uh, factor in using a product. And so um, the science can be 100% correct. But if it's a really big pain to have to give these, oftentimes they don't. Well, they now we're I'm going to make lemonade out of that, though. Okay?
2: Hit, hit us up. Hit <laughs> us. Any, anytime you can handle the head of that cow, you can learn so much about that mm-hmm. cow. You learn more from the That's front true. end of a cow than you do the back end. Walking up behind her and giving her a shot versus looking her in the eye, mm-hmm. being able to feel her, her ears, look at her eyes and see if they're clear. Is she keeping her nose Nialating clean her or not? You can see that, too. You know, yep. All those kind of Sunken things. In. If, if mm-hmm. you know what you're looking for, it's a so. wonderful opportunity to be able to examine your cow while you're giving these it things, and it, it's something that every dairyman, if they're a good herdsman, should learn to do, is to tune into what their cows are telling them, and most of it comes right from their face.
0: Which most of the time you don't, you don't get it near, and
2: especially no. in the milking parlor, you right. never right. see it, do you? Right. You know, you, all I, think,
0: you, so. I think sometimes we forget how heavy some of their heads are for, <laughs> for the people out there who have ever who have this, ever visited and, and some dairy cattle. I know I got a few cows yes. in my day that.
2: And that is critical. Ooh. You do have to have the proper restraints and the pop, proper equipment to do mm-hmm. this. You yes. don't want to be getting bounced around because I'm a pretty big guy, and I've been bounced around by cows. There's we're just no They're done. <laughs> yep. You'll never be stronger <laughs>
0: than
2: her.
1: Yeah,
0: so. yeah. So, but I mean, I think we we really we told a great story here. We kind of covered a great story. Milk fever has been around. Will probably always be around, or in some form, subclinically, maybe. And you know, we went from hey, we can. We can do some things with the diet ahead of time to kind of help, um, you know, balance those receptors and that calcium utilization to not every cow needs a bottle. That's that's kind of reserved for your extreme cases to, you know, pace versus boluses versus safety versus handling. And, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, what the next 50 years of milk fever looks like is, is really well, an interesting picture.
2: And you bring that up because some— This is the other part that's changed from 50, 60 years ago and what we've learned about calcium. In the last probably 10 years now, we're starting to look at this short window of hypocalcemia as to what effect it has on milk production. Yeah. And so a lot of the work that we're doing as a company right now is looking at, if we give these oral calcium supplements to these cows, what effect does it have on the milk production of that cow for this lactation? Sure. And you wouldn't think that, okay, if I just go look at this cow, she doesn't have milk fever do I want to give her an oral calcium supplement or not? I've given my anionic salts prior. I should be good, right? Um, even in those herds that have those programs, preventive mm-hmm. programs in there, when we start administering oral calcium to cows, we're seeing improvements in milk production mm-hmm. to the sure. point where a 5 6 $7 investment can refer, return $50, $60 worth of milk in that next 120 days or so. So that's the next step that I see with calcium and, and the whole milk fever thing is getting away from the clinical milk fever side to saying, what's the opportunity here if I fix this natural metabolic process that's going on and I support that cow during the short little window
1: mm-hmm.
2: where she has to catch up? What does that mean for the productivity of that cow? Right. And those are some of the things we're seeing. And it's not just milk production. It also has some effects on reproduction that we're seeing, although not as consistent as milk production. And it also has a big impact on health. <clears throat> and so, you know, we're learning more about this. And I think it's, I, I, again, the glass half full, glass mm-hmm. half empty. I see this as the glass half full. We're learning some things that can actually help dairymen make more mm-hmm. money off of their cows that they may not even know they're losing.
0: Well, Sorry. I think you just i think you just said the, the golden line right there. Help dairymen make more money because... I'm sure we all want to make more money, right? And that's that's an interesting, um, interesting line of of research observation. I'd be I'd be curious to know what if if, if farmers have experienced the same things.
1: Well, I, I can tell you, and and we haven't. I I haven't traced them out through you know a lactation or two lactations. But one thing I had a benefit in my practice was we did have a a blood analyzer that we take out the farmers. Oh sure, yep. Us. So I ran bloods on every animal that I ever, I at least collected bloods on every animal I ever had a suspect milk fever case on, or or for any other reason, mm-hmm. alert downer cow, things like that. And so I had the benefit of running bloods on on cattle that were in their second lect. Um, you know, um, you read the book and you would never even think of treating those cows for right. hypocalcemia. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this before, Dr. Zimmer and I, and and those cows all have a decrease in calcium in their blood, regardless what their age is, after and it makes sense after they're utilizing that calcium in that manner. And so um, I think gone is the day of okay, she's a you know it's her it's her fifth calf and we're gonna treat her as a milk fever right. suspect. Where now we realize that there's a calcium balance in that cow, even as a younger animal, um, is is beneficial to her because we know it's not within the normal ranges. And then now it's the natural extrapolation to. What does this look like second lactation after that, third lactation after that as well? And so with the technology that we have and and smartphone technology and and analyzers that were prohibited cost-wise, you know, 30 years ago, now we have the ability to kind of look at these and get real numbers right at the same time, too.
2: And it's teaching us so much. Mm -hmm. For sure. Even first lactation animals. So These are animals that have never had a calf before Mm -hmm. at this time. Historically, quote, heifers never got milk fever, Right. And so if we were talking about it from right. a milk fever standpoint, we never worried about the heifers. We didn't, know, But we do know that they suffer from suboptimal calcium levels, mm-hmm. just like older cows do, just not as many of them, usually not quite as severe. Mm-hmm. There are subgroups of first lactation heifers that we have found respond very, very well from a milk production standpoint by getting an oral calcium mm-hmm. supplement.
1: They're the perfect oral calcium patient. There. Exactly. And the so, ones you definitely wouldn't want to right. stick and, a needle in. And so
2: we right. talked yeah, about yeah. ketosis earlier in heavy animals. Overconditioned, first lactation animals give more milk if you give them an oral calcium. That's what a number of our studies have shown. And intuitively, you would say, oh, don't bother giving anything to a first calf effort. Well, they do. Another one is any cow that's gone through a prolonged gestation. So most of the research trials I've seen, the cutoff has been 277 days of gestation. If she's longer than that and we give her an oral calcium supplement, she responds with more milk. Of course, yeah. So we can selectively go back and look at our records now and say yes, this uh, first calf heifer is is over-conditioned, so she's a candidate to get oral calcium. Or this is supposed to be 277 days for a due date, and when she goes longer than that, I'm going to move her into this protocol where she's going to get an oral calcium. And the same thing is true on older cows. They give more milk if they're longer gestation. So we can selectively pick and choose these cows that we can give oral calcium supplements to because we know they're going to respond. And and I'm not sure we figured out the mechanism by which, okay, if it's a longer gestation, is that what, her metabolism is shut down more? or right. what the real reason here is, but we know what we're seeing for results. And right. I think the next step mm-hmm. will be to figure out the why.
0: And someday, you guys will have that answer, I'm confident, probably on this podcast. <laughs> well, as, ca- as, as
1: cows make more milk, this problem's not going to go away. It's not going to no. go away. Right? So no, if anything, they I don't become much.
0: think we're ever going to eradicate it. Exactly. But right,
1: we're learning but... and building that. Building and that's that really
2: metabolism. the difference between now and 70 years ago yep. is the milk production levels of the cows yeah. and the calcium demand that they have, is it's not even comparable. Yeah. It's 100 pounds a cow. We, we are then, much better at what we do, mm-hmm. but the cows have a much higher demand than we had back yeah. then.
0: Yeah. Right. But we're also getting better at negating her needs for yep. calcium. Yes. We and have more
2: options. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the science is, is catching up a little bit with that. Definitely. So, uh, you know, I asked this at the end of every, every podcast, right? So tell me, you know, what's, what's the take home here? What's the take home on what a farmer needs to know today about his milk fever s- clinical or subclinical on his farm?
1: So as a practitioner, um, and we can talk about this with a lot of products that BioVet brings, um, there's a ton of competition out there, and there's lots yeah. of products that are out there as well. And so um, it, it takes a lot of backgrounding to be able to determine what the best product is for the price point that you're dealing with and the amount of prevalence that you have in your herd. What I would say is realize that we still have therapeutic treatments for those down cows that are required, and that's not going to go away. We're always going to require that. But Implementing an oral calcium supplement, again, depending on the animal, but near that calving date, and sometimes it may be a little bit before, Um, I think if you look at the investment that you're putting in and then the payback that you get out of that product, um, it's a no-brainer that this should be implemented on every farm if it hasn't already.
0: Dr. Zimmer?
2: I think my take home would be as a dairyman, even if you have an effective DCAD ration anionic salt program in place, your cows are still going to be suboptimal in their calcium levels. Mm -hmm. They're still going to have hypocalcemia and an oral calcium supplement is a good way to supplement those. It's, just, it, it's coming at the same problem from two different directions, and they both have merit. So I, sure. I, I usually end up my conversations on calcium by saying if your feed salesman tells you that you've got an anonic salt program in place, you don't need this, don't believe them. And if that pharmaceutical salesman comes down the road and says you've got an oral calcium supplement, you don't need the anonic salts, don't believe them. You need to use both if you want to manage this for the best profitability on your cow and the best ability of that cow to transition through this period. Use them both. They're great technologies. They both have their advantages of what they can do, and they do complement each other very, very well. And they pay for themselves. They really do. Really.
0: And I think that's that's the important part, like Mm – it's, it's really just sitting down and, and trying it on, on your own farm and seeing the results for yourself and knowing that, yeah, it just a minor or a minimal investment can really pay back in dividends if you're paying attention. so
2: And, and pick the form that you're most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. There are some people that are quite comfortable using a liquid drench. There are some people that are comfortable using boluses. There are some people that don't even like the size of our small boluses. They'd rather use a capsule that's even smaller. Whatever you're comfortable with, you need to look at that and say, this is going to be how I'm going to build my management protocol.
0: Well, I mean, there it is. It's never going away, but it's it's getting more manageable. And that's, that's what we always want to hear, um, I think, as dairymen. And, you know, stay tuned uh, as we continue to talk all things cows, all things uh, biochemistry, all things science, all things microbes and microbials. To learn more about microbials, check out our other podcast episodes, or read more at bio-vet.com.